You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. Today's guest on the podcast is Mr. Stuart Lyle, Urban Operations Research Lead for the Defense Science and Technology Laboratory, basically my summary, the DARPA of the UK and Major Jason Giroux of the 1st Canadian Division Headquarters. Most of you will know he's my partner in crime for urban scholarship. We write case studies together. We bounce ideas off each other. This podcast will be a little different than the ones in the past. It's the holiday season. As many of my listeners know, I've created urban warfare Christmas lists. I've published them in print and in podcast of just me saying, if I was president, if I was defense chief, just had my way, what would I give? militaries for better ability to do urban operations across the range of military operations. Well, this year, I thought I'd bring in the heavy hitters, and Stuart and Jason are literally some of the world's leading urban operations scholars. And I thought I'd bring in the heavy hitters and just do a round robin, taking turns of mentioning what's on our Christmas list this year. So, I think I will start with the first one since my podcast. And basically, I want this to be an open conversation. If we each steal each other, since we're all, we'll probably have similar ideas, then haha, I got to it first. So for me, John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at the Modern War Institute, my first Christmas list want for this year is a fully resourced urban warfare center. Right. Many of you know that I'm I'm a colonel in the California State Guard with assignment to the 40th Infantry Division, who are really trying to change the U.S. military's preparedness for urban operations, and includes a week plus long urban planners course. All amazing initiatives that I do believe is the biggest thing to hit the U.S. military in decades, but it's not fully resourced like, for instance, other major centers in the U.S. military. So the number one on my list would be a fully resourced research center, which would include the 40th Infantry Division's leadership, but also add resources to add parts to it, such as a academic research center billets. It's all about money and what you can do. So with that, I'll turn it over to my other experts in urban operations. And if you don't mind, guys, if you could give us a little bit of background to yourselves and your expertise and experience in urban operations, and then give me your first item. My name is Stuart Lyle. I'm the Urban Operations Research Lead for the principal organization that provides science and technology support to UK defense. So we provide the scientific and technological support to them, providing you know, so that horizon scanning of technology, experimentation, and that sort of thing. But then another side, what we do is the, the work that I do, which is provide an analytical support uh, to help decision making. So we have the technologists who sort of push the boundaries. And then we have people like me who then try and look at where the operational opportunities are for that technology uh, and how we can fit it in. So that's that's what I do. Um, I predominantly focus on future land warfare, supporting the British Army headquarters with their thinking about the army after next. And then obviously that has uh, thinking about future warfare has a very strong urban operations lens to it. So that's where my primary focus is. So I'm going to build on what John said and say, yes, we want an urban warfare training center, but I want to have uh, bespoke urban warfare courses that are held at all levels. So section, squad tactics, platoon company tactics, and then higher. And I want to make those 
compulsory for promotion and not elective. So at the moment in the UK military, there's the Urban Operations Instructors course. It's an elective course. You choose to go on it or you you can be sent on it, but it's not a compulsory course. I want to make these things compulsory. Urban is the most complex environment. It's actually also our most frequent single environment that we operate in. So I think having something elective in that isn't really enough. And I think we need to be sort of pushing this thing harder and making these these courses compulsory. Awesome. Jason, you're up. Thanks, John. Major Jason Drew. I'm an infantry officer with the Royal Canadian Regiment of the Canadian Armed Forces. I've been involved in urban operations training for two decades. Uh, John calls me his unicorn because I am an urban operations instructor and I'm also an urban warfare historian. And I've been doing this now rather intensively over the uh, past seven years within the Canadian Armed Forces. I just want to give my appreciation to John for having me back for a second podcast and welcoming our British counterpart, Stuart, to today's program. I hope our listeners out there will give us positive reviews that we have a very diverse but focused group here today. We have an American, a British, and a Canadian scholars and warriors who are very passionate students of urban operations. So we hope to give you a good show today and that you will walk away with having learned something. My first uh, urban operations Christmas gift I'd like to give everybody is money. Uh, Lots and lots and lots of money. John mentioned it earlier. Now, one day when John and I were having beverages together, he confessed to me that he thought love made the world go round. But Stuart and I and and you, the listeners, know that it's actually money. Money makes the world go round. Now, before you sit there and go, okay, Drew's just throwing money at the problem or, well, you know, all military training could benefit from having more money to support it, not just urban operations. I want to put this into an urban operations context and let me further slice it into three parts. There's the money you need before an urban operation, the money you need during the urban operation, and the money you're going to need after the urban operation completes. So the first gift is the money you need before the urban operation, which includes purchasing all of the fantastic kit and equipment and weapons, constructing the training facilities, and building the programs that John and Stuart are going to be discussing. And I won't focus on the equipment because John and Stuart are going to do that, but I do want to emphasize the training facilities. It it includes building the training facilities or sending our soldiers, sailors, and air persons to those bases which have invested the money to build good urban operations training facilities. Now, I'll be candid. I don't think a lot of Western militaries have a lot of good urban operations training facilities. You know, a few buildings and maybe some sea cans that are plopped down in the middle of a big open training area and spread out with large spaces uh, in between. That may be adequate for some small unit training, the hands and feet stuff, as they call it. Lieutenant Colonel Ralph Peters stated that whenever people think of urban operations, they just think of buildings. And to go further, some people just think of infantry soldiers clearing buildings and that's it. But a lot of the training facilities we have around the world are completely inadequate. If you are a senior officer or a senior NCO who has to look at the bigger picture of training to plan, sustain, and employ the combined arms tactics necessary for a company or a battalion, a regiment, a brigade, or a division in, in urban operations. Very fortunately, John and I were keynote speakers at the NATO Special Environments Panel out in Los Angeles this past September, and we had the opportunity to go visit the United States Marine Urban Op- Operations Training Site at 29 Palms, and it was very impressive. And talking with John, the city of Razish out at the U.S. Army National Training Site in California is even larger. Our German friends have built a sizable site at Schnaugersburg, and France's Urban Operations Training Site in Sassonne, uh, Le Centre d'Entraînement aux Actions Urbaines, or Senzub, also a very sizable facility. These are the templates and these are the models that all militaries have to strive for. These training sites have hundreds of buildings, subtraining passages, special effects capabilities, cameras to record the training, distinct areas like marketplaces and embassies, prisons, stadiums. And these training sites are very expensive. But if your military cannot afford to build them, then you have two options. Either send your soldiers, sailors, and airpersons to these American, French, or German sites, or you find a small village or an area of a city where your military can rent or purchase the buildings and property they rest on to do the training. The latter are very rare, but they're out there. When I was supporting 
a part-time Army Reserve unit up here in Canada, the Argyle and Southern Highlanders of Canada out of Hamilton, Ontario. We conducted three years of urban operations training, the hands and feet stuff. But we did find an abandoned military village that had been part of the distant early warning line way back during the Cold War. It was located a couple of hours northeast of Toronto. And we discovered that it was now owned by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and we asked permission to conduct training there. An entire town that we could smash and break and destroy, and we just needed to go back and fix it all up again afterwards. It was great. So before you launch into an urban operation, invest the money to train your soldiers to purchase and use the specialized kit, equipment, and weapons, but send them to the appropriate training facilities so they understand how physically large and and complex urban environments really are. John, I think that's good for now. I'll stop there and I'll let you and Stuart have a turn and then I'll go back to the money in because I do have more related topics with money, if that's all right. Perfectly okay, Jason. And I don't know about this conversation about love making, (laughs) but you know, I don't, one, I don't drink. So, but if you remember that, that's okay. Well, yeah. Well, you know, maybe I was having a few drinks at the time. That's right. Uh, Okay. So the next item uh, for me is something that I can fit under my tree. I do like gear. I like to discuss everything from the tactical up to the strategic and urban operations. But I do think a lot of our equipment drives how we train, which drives how we think about the next urban operation. And I know that each one of us could talk about different gear from the past or different gear that we could even imagine to help tactically accomplish a task in the military for urban operations differently. So my next Christmas list item is a robotic smoke emitter. And it's not that easy because somebody will say, well, we have that. I've seen some YouTube clips of that. One, I want a cheap, expendable, robotic smoke emitter, maybe even airdroppable that I can just drop all around an urban environment that I'm about to go into. And what we don't have, I think today is a breathable smoke. So John, why do you want this? One, I want it because in the urban terrain, whether you're the attacker or the defender, he who can see the enemy, whether you're inside the building, which gets to, you know, seen through concrete, but let's just stick with in the open environment, right? In the streets, in the alleyways, in the approach march, uh, he who can see has an advantage. So I want to take that advantage away from everybody. And even if I'm opposing a highly technological force, let's say a Chinese or Russian that I think have thermal sites, I still would want these smoke emitters who is just going to blanket the urban environment with a dense smoke cloud that only those with the capability can see through. And I think one of the, for instance, that I just came back, um, most listeners know from Nagorno-Karabakh, where I got to walk the ground of the Battle of Susha, one of the biggest battles, I think, in the last least decade, if not more. And what changed that fight was a, a heavy fog rolled in. And I was actually, when I was there last month, a heavy frog was there on the day I was there and it changed the fight. So I think if we had the capability to deploy smoke at mass and persistence, right? So not in a hand grenade that I'm going to throw out and last for 10 to 15 seconds, 30 seconds, max, whatever. I want multiple smoke emitters with breathable smoke. Because even as we talk about a highly, you know, with many sensors, um, not just the aerial strike capabilities, but, you know, a, a camera or a binos, or, you know, civilians in the environment, everybody can see you in the urban environment. I want to reduce that visibility down to only, hopefully only me, but even if it's me and the enemy, let's change the setting and create an environment where some of those disadvantages and advantages are changed 
And I think it will change the urban fight. So, but they have to be cheap, right? I'm an old infantryman. If you give me this $200,000 piece of equipment that I'm going to be reluctant to use it, and I'm definitely not going to just throw it out there and let it be out there by itself. And it's a, you know, a national event. If it gets lost, like the Raven that I hate, so don't get me started, but a cheap, expendable robotic smoke emitter. Over to you, Stuart. Okay, so I'm going to jump up above the very tactical and say, as an analyst, of course, I would want more research. And one of the things that I would definitely want to have more research into is the subject of slums and the implications of military operations in that environment. In the UK urban doctrine, and I know the US Army is the same, slums or shanty towns is just one of the urban terrain zones that we sort of characterize the urban areas with. But when you actually start to look at slums, they are incredibly complex. Uh, DSL looked at this when we did our future cities report, and it was one of these areas that we just kept, it kept pulling us down the rabbit hole. And then we had to try and sort of pull ourselves back from it. Slums are so incredibly complex because they're effectively where traditional governance stops, traditional infrastructure stops, and where traditional law and order stops. So you have the unofficial governance, uh, the unofficial infrastructure, and the complexity that, that that provides, and then the density of both the buildings, the terrain and people. They're culturally, demographically very diverse as well. So trying to understand them is incredibly complicated. We can't avoid them. Slums currently represent 33% of the global urban population. It's predicted to rise to 40% by 2030, and then rise up to 50% of the global urban population by 2050. So when you think of it like that, you know, these are unavoidable terrain types that we're going to be going into, but they're also incredibly misunderstood. So I want to have more research into them and figuring out, okay, what are the different typologies of slums? What are the different types of governance that we can identify? And then what are the implications of these of these different factors on the conduct of military operations? Great. Over to you, Jason. All right. Now I talked about the money that you need for the training facilities. Now you need more money in order to have the adequate consumable resources also. So here I'm talking about the bullets, the water, the bullets, the bullets, the water, the water, and the bullets, the bullets, the bullets, the water, and the bullets. And don't forget about the bullets and the water and the bullets and the water and the rations and the medical supplies. Traditionally, urban operations consume about four times the amount of ammunition that's normally used in other environments. So when that sniper, when that enemy sniper drops one of your troops and you're staring at a large building with dozens of windows and you know that sniper's in there someplace, you'll expend every bullet you have to destroy that sniper and his partner before he drops another one of your troops. Buildings are made of concrete, steel, stone, and wood, and it takes a lot of ammunition to destroy enemy positions if the enemy is hiding inside those buildings. Whether it's small arms, bullets, grenades, anti-armor ammunition, tank rounds, artillery rounds, naval rounds, air force bombs. During the Battle of Ortona, the infantry soldiers from the Loyal Edmonton Regiment, the Loyal Eddies, expended a lot of ammo, and the numbers are really impressive after only eight days of intense urban operations fighting. 918 anti-tank rounds, 4,053 inch mortar bombs, 2,002 inch mortar bombs, 57,000 rounds of small arms ammunition, 4,800 rounds of Thompson submachine gun ammunition, 600 Mills bomb hand grenades, 700 number 77 smoke grenades. Each dismounted infantry soldier was carrying somewhere between 12 to 15 hand grenades each on a daily basis. I recently returned from a NATO exercise in Germany and when I was reading NATO's Allied Rapid Reaction Corps planning our sticks handbook, some guy had stated that urban operations uses less ammunition than other types of environments. I don't know who wrote that, but I can tell you that that guy was not an urban warfare historian because history has proven that person wrong over and over again. So make sure you have lots of money purchase the ammunition for the training and for the actual operation itself. Then there's the money to purchase the water and the ration. Urban operations are very hungry and thirsty work. We need to have about 250% the normal issue of rations and water as a result. Our bodies need about 2,000 calories a day to do our normal daily routine. And urban operations soldiers, especially the dismounted ones, 
will need upwards of about 5,000 calories a day. They're climbing up and down several flights of stairs and up ladders. They're running through streets. They're crawling through subterranean systems. They're lifting each other up through windows and holes and walls. They're moving heavy furniture around. Three rations a day, not good enough. Try nine rations a day. Ensure you have one fresh ration a day because military rations don't have enough of the calories. One camelback of water a day, not good enough. Try three camelbacks full of water a day. You can't trust the water in the city's pipes. It could be of poor quality. The enemy may have poisoned the water. They may have turned the taps off completely. So you're going to need a lot of money to purchase the rations and the water that your troops need to fight an urban battle. Then there's the money you need to purchase all the medical supplies and to train more medical personnel. Urban operations usually generates three to six times the amount of casualties than normal. I'll put that into a context. During the Second World War, not the fighting on the Eastern Front between the Russians and the Germans or the Pacific Theater where the Japanese were so fanatical, but in the, on the Southern and the Northwestern European fronts. So we're talking North Africa, Sicily, Italy, France, and the Low Countries, and into Germany. Casualty rates were about 2 to 5% on average, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less. So for every 100 soldiers you had going into battle, about 2 to 5 were killed, wounded, or missing in action. Now, in urban operations, again, it's three to six times that amount of casualties. So the enemy is only a few meters away in the next room or he's across the street. The buildings are made of concrete, steel, metal, rock, and wood, which is much more unforgiving on the human body than dirt, as is the shrapnel and the damage from those buildings when they're struck, all the ammunition being fired. So the medical casualties begin to add up. So you're looking at a minimum casualty rate of 18 to 30%, which is a lot of personnel. The Americans at Second Fallujah did a lot of good things. They were doing a lot of right things at Second Fallujah, and some infantry companies still had casualty rates of 40%. So all this translates into having a lot more personnel, medical personnel, trained dismounted troops, whoever, having the appropriate medical training and having all the medical supplies they need to help the wounded. That takes money. Spend the money to purchase a lot of medical supplies and train a lot of people to help the casualties. Urban areas may have hospitals and medical facilities readily available, but you can't always count on using them if the laws and regulations don't allow it. Although if you're going to have high casualty rates, you may have to get those agreements or bend the rules to use the the local medical facilities anyway. So get ready to spend a lot of money on bullets and water and bullets and water and water and bullets and water and bullets and water and medical supplies and medical training and rations. Whatever the cost of purchasing all that, it's going to be a lot cheaper than paying for the funerals of all the dead troops that will occur if you didn't spend the money on the ammunition, the rations, the water, the medical personnel and the medical resources in the first place. The money you need during the execution of an urban operation will be for those quick fixes that you need. One of the gifts that John talked about in his original list was having a lot of people with a credit card and an Amazon Prime account. Some of the tools you have may work, some may not. So the force that is more flexible and can more readily adapt to emerging conditions during an urban fight has that immense advantage. So let's have the freedom to buy and experiment with tools such as these as problems present themselves on the battlefield. And then finally, there's the money you need after the urban operation. I'm looking at our senior political and military leaders here now, folks, and what you need to rebuild the city after it's been fought through. Cities have become, as you know, economic, industrial, political, cultural, religious centers for large populations, and they must be rebuilt afterwards. So the fact of urban operations is that, try as we might not to, buildings and facilities will be destroyed. Um, Stalingrad, Ortona, Aachen, Manila, Berlin, Seoul, Huey, 1st, 2nd Grozny, 2nd Fallujah, Ramadi, Aleppo, Mosul. These are cities which suffered some devastating destruction. You know, After the Battle of Ortona, the Canadians spent months and a considerable amount of money to rebuild the town afterwards. After 2nd Fallujah, the Americans spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to rebuild people's homes. The latest cost for the rebuilding of Mosul is in the tens of billions of dollars. The rebuilding of Marawi in the Philippines will probably also go into the hundreds of millions, if not a couple billion dollars, if the Philippine government ever gets around to rebuilding the city. And it's not just the actual construction of the buildings and the facilities. It's the cost for reinstituting all the programs and the infrastructure, the feeding, the housing of tens of thousands of civilians who have been displaced by the urban battle. 
So our senior political military leaders have to prepare to open up their wallets and strip a lot of money out of our government's bank accounts in order to rebuild, 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 not only the buildings and infrastructure, but also people's lives. John Stewart, over to you. Thanks, Jason. I understand you want some money. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to actually spin right off of that and take up Stuart's challenge, getting more strategic. So of course we need resources, but I think more importantly, hey, I'll just speak. U.S. military has a lot of money, right? So the, the defense budget, it's sizable, right? But there's an issue with priorities, right? There's an issue of narratives. What is the future? What should be the priority? And this is a giant the pun, giant war in DC on who, who can have the right narrative about what is the future, what is the right investment, who is more important. Don't even get me started on that. So my next Christmas list item is actually an urban operations senior leader. And by that, I mean a very high ranking. Right now I have, for the first time in my career as an urban operations scholar, division leadership of the 40th Infantry Division who believes that urban operations is the future and that we're not prepared enough. And they're putting amazing amounts of their own limited resources and priorities into urban operations. Literally, that is a game changer. But if I could, your genie saying a little magic here, I want the highest level leader who believes that the urban environment, if not it's the future, is at least the top environment we are least prepared for, right? So I'm talking either the senior military leader, a general Don Starry for modernization, a general secretary of defense Mattis who takes close combat infantry special forces and makes it the top priority of the entire department of defense. It, this could even be a congressional leader with influence, like an Ike Skelton who viewed joint professional military education so strongly that he made sure it was a priority. I needed an urban operations senior leader who chooses urban to be its one thing. Some people are following, but DOD just identified an Arctic operations center in, to be stood up and possibly an Arctic unit. That's great. And it's needed, I'm sure. I need an urban operations leader who believes and then invests, makes it its one thing, right? General Milley made the SVABs his thing. I know from experience that many of these senior leaders don't get all of their priorities. They get one, maybe two major things that they can do to be their legacy. I need an urban operations guy, you know, an Ike Skelton, a John McCain type of person who says, dang it, we're not prepared for this environment and we're going to invest and it's going to be a priority and it's going to take some radical change, not just keep doing what we're doing and expecting you know, different outcomes, radical change across the dot mill PF spectrum, as we say, to get us there. So that's mine. Over to Stuart. Don't want to make you too jealous, John, but we have that in the British Army. So whether it be the Land Warfare Centre or Army Headquarters, all the senior leadership talking frequently about urban ops and trying to improve our, our capacity in it. So uh, I think this is one where from a UK perspective, yeah, we have less money, but we have that one in the bag, I think, at the moment, uh, which is good. So... For my next one, one of the things that is a particular area of focus of mine is light forces. When we start looking at urban operations, the urban warfare purists like to kind of automatically go for the heavy forces with tanks and the armored infantry fighting vehicles and all the, the heavy artillery and stuff that comes with that and the guided rockets and things, which is great. And if you're going into a, a high intensity urban warfare battle, then, then absolutely that those are the kind of forces that you want. But when I look at the British Army in particular, uh, we have five battalions of heavy mech armored infantry the majority of our infantry mass is light forces and what they don't come with is the protection the firepower particular things like the precision fires so 
my main focus for a lot of my work is trying to improve the light forces capability in urban operations. So and one of the things that we've found to be a real change in, in, in outcomes is more and layered dismounted firepower. So one of the reasons being, you know, if the infantry can defeat the targets that are in front of them, whether they be behind barriers or, you know, just generically in complex terrain, they're not having to rely on those comms links to joint fires assets, which the comms might not necessarily be assured in this environment. And the joint fires assets might not be able to deliver because of close proximity or cresting issues, those sorts of things. So I want to improve the dismounted infantry's ability to engage the targets that they are presented with. So more anti-structure munitions, but you know more applicable to the urban environment and dismounted forces, so lighter, uh, have heavier ones at a higher asset uh, as as sort of platoon assets. But in the section, you know you want your low 66s with an anti-structure round in it. Our underbarrel grenade launchers are fantastic. You know, the side loading thing means you can put pretty much anything into them, but we've only got one lethal round, which is the high explosive dual purpose. I want to give them an airburst, a 40 millimeter grenade, thermobaric. DSTL helped develop uh, recently a breaching 40 mil grenade round. So actually you can, you can breach light obstacles from standoff. So being able to exploit those sorts of systems, absolute game changers for the full spectrum of urban warfare, because we won't be deploying tank into low-end counterinsurgency, but that doesn't mean that you won't face punchy urban fight in it. So I want more and layered firepower to try and give the dismounts the ability to engage the targets that they are presented with without having to rely on the, the joint fires, which, as Jason said, it creates collateral damage, but then raises the cost post-conflict. It raises the casualty rate and all those sorts of things. All right. Over to you, Jason. Okay. Second urban operations Christmas gift I would like to bequeath, if you give me this leeway, is that of time. Over the past few years, whenever I've been giving lectures on urban operations, I always tell my students that I'm not going to get them smart on this topic in the hour or two that I have them in front of me. All I can do is give them the basics and then coach and mentor them along the way. This is such a complex and complicated environment that militaries must spend weeks or even months getting their personnel smart on it. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that every soldier, sailor, and air person in the world become a specialist in urban operations. Far from it. Australian Michael Evans wrote an extremely intelligent, thought-provoking piece called City Without Joy, Urban Operations in the 21st Century. And within that fantastic read, he talked about militaries needing to have a generalist and not a specialist approach. I think our listeners would agree that Western militaries must be able to meet any type of threat that our enemies deliver to us. We must be ready to protect our nations in any kind of environment. So to state that everybody and their dog must become an urban operations expert is beyond reality. Um, however, given the trends that we're now seeing, more than half the world's population currently lives in an urban area. Those numbers are growing every month, especially in the third world. By the time the next generation of children grow up, you could see two-thirds, three-quarters of the world living in an urban area. Our enemies know that urban operations are a weakness because we haven't spent the money, time, or the educational training to get our warriors smart on this environment. Our enemies see urban areas as the great equalizer. These are the reasons why we're being drawn into this environment. So keeping Michael Evans in mind, let's not focus all of our energies on urban operations, but given the trends, let's be mindful that the urban environment is becoming more and more likely as the environment we'll be fighting in. So let's get our people as smart as we can on it while ensuring we don't forget about the other environment so that we don't put our warriors' bodies into body bags. We must spend the time that it takes to get our people, military and civilian, smart on this topic. Given its many challenges and complexities, we must have as much time as possible to do urban operations training, 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 training. I'm not talking just about the hands and feet, tactical clearing rooms and stuff. Don't get me wrong. That stuff is important, but just as important is the senior officers and the senior NCOs of our militaries to take the time to learn about urban operations, planning, tactics, and sustainment at the higher levels. That material's out there. 
Take the time to read it, analyze it, and understand it. Take the time to do the training. Learn from your errors and do more training. It's like what Confederate General Thomas J. Stonewall Jackson stated. I'm obliged to sweat them tonight, sir, so that I can save their blood tomorrow. And believe me, there's no lack of sweating when it comes to urban operations. An Israeli military statement I've heard is there's no such thing as a fully trained soldier. You won't learn everything about urban operations. John Stewart and I have been studying urban operations for years. We've been doing it probably for almost two decades now, and even we don't know everything. That's why we consider ourselves students of urban operations and not really subject matter experts. We just happen to know a little more than the average soldier, sailor, and air person. But take the time to study as much as you can about this subject, and it'll make you a better urban warrior. John, that's good for now. I'm going to come back to time as another gift later on if you want to carry on. That was great. I 100% agree. And I think if you want to spend a little bit over a week of time focusing on urban operations, you sign up for that 40th Infantry Division Urban Planner course, and it's going to be highly beneficial to any investment of time of soldiers and leaders. So let's do one more round. Unfortunately, I know we all the three of us combined, we could do multiple episodes, but for the sake of time, this is our last round. And I have so much left on my list to talk about from flamethrowers to active protection systems on all vehicles. Like Take the RPG out of the equation in the dense urban environment since it's Anybody with an RPG can actually put some hurt on even the most advanced tank without an active protective system. From city watchers to tear gas, you guys know I'm, I'm a big fan of tear gas. So many things that I want to talk about. But look, you know, some of this is I got to have more money. I got to have more leadership. I got to have priorities. One thing I think that could radically change a, a military formation's ability to do urban operations Literally the most complex terrain you could ever send a military force into that could be done today with you know something with like a Secretary Mattis type of initiative at the highest level. And when this came about for the close combat uh, lethality task force that we were doing, it was almost viewed as it's just too hard to take on is the personnel equation of this, right? Human minds, yes, they'll be augmented in the future with artificial intelligence to help decision making. Got it. It's just a limit to the human mind and with the way we approach our professional military education to individual leaders. But we have increased the complexity, not just of our own equipment, right? The more drones and sensors you add, there's more cognitive power you have to put against that. And I'm a strong believer in that you can hit cognitive overload. But in the complexity of urban operations, after having experienced it myself, it's just a lot to ask one leader to take on. So my last and final Christmas list that could be done today. Yes, it would take a lot of figuring out how to do it at scale, especially at the US military, is add an assistant company commander, an assistant platoon leader, and an assistant squad leader across echelon of your close combat forces. So that in the complexity of urban environments, when you know planning requirements are higher, the human intelligence, the signals intelligence, the all the IPB that you'll be doing at the lowest level to the execution of the operation, the platoon leaders, the squad leaders who have guys now having to watch some sensor. It's over what our capacity is in our current modern force design. It overloads it. We need more leaders at that lowest level helping in this environment. So that's my final could be done today, despite the challenges. Stuart, over to you. Yeah, that's great. We've shown the exact same thing in some of our simulation modeling that having that additional individual to help the local commander with that cognitive load, it really does change the outcome of things. So no, uh, I fully support that one. 
So my last one is going to build on what Jason said about building up those urban training centers that are going to be suitable for actually doing that sort of company level and even battle group or battalion tactical group training. So I actually want to drill it a little bit down further than that and actually say, I want to try and improve localized training. So every garrison or duty station, there are the capacity to build up the skills before you then go to one of these improved urban training training sites for collector training. So we've seen this with things like the British Army 16-hour assault brigade using the, the 4GD urban skills technology. You know, that has massively improved their low-level tactical training. And I'm going to steal something from Rob Taylor from 4GD, which is, you know, he says that, you know, if you improve individual training, you passively improve collective training. But there's no guarantee that it works the other way around. So if you have those low-level facilities that can you can do, the um, you can build up those low-level skills. You can then build on that solid foundation when you do come together for the collective training. And then at the slightly higher level, at the localized training, I want to see more wargaming take place. Wargaming is an incredibly powerful tool for learning. It's a collective environment, so everybody's seeing what everybody else is doing. You can run them differently, so you can have closed games. But ultimately, it's a safe-to-fail, cheap, quick-to-run environment where you can actually start to learn off each other. And in the war game, you can see how you know, the cause and effect of your decisions and how you deploy. You know, we've seen this. We use wargaming a lot in DSL to provide the analysis. And we bring military players in and we give them a tactical scenario and have them wargame it out. And the level of detail that we can go into, when you go to these collective training sites, you can't fire you know, 120 millimeter cannon rounds at a wall and then easily simulate what happens beyond that. You can't necessarily replicate artillery or airstrikes you know, correctly and, and to the level of detail you need. You can do that in a war game. So you can actually start to train people how to employ the full spectrum of effect that they would have access to uh, at a company group level. So more war gaming for junior officers and you know, up to company commanders. And then more localized training to build that foundation of urban skills that you can then build on when you come together for your collective training. Great. Over to you, Jason. Okay, John, I'm going to combine the last two. Here we go. Okay, there's the time you need to conduct a proper intelligence preparation of the urban environment. One of the many reasons why the Americans were so successful at Second Fallujah was because they spent May to November 2004 conducting a proper intelligence assessment of that city. There's so many factors in a city's system of systems that to study them all will take months. And I won't list them all because it'll just take too much time. But all these factors have to be studied so our soldiers, sailors, and airpersons know what they're getting themselves into. Dr. Russell Glenn and James and Joe Medby wrote a book called Street Smart, Intelligence Preparation of the Battlefield for Urban Operations. Very good read. The American doctrinal publication, Intelligence Supports Urban Operations, is also fantastic. Gives you checklists. Absolutely fantastic. Time also plays a psychological factor with having operational and tactical patience. We have to make everyone, even our senior military and political leaders and our civilian populations back home, understand that urban operations takes weeks or months. Combined infantry and engineer platoon with armor and artillery support will take 45 minutes to clear a bungalow, 90 minutes to do the same thing without fire support. That means it's going to take the better part of a day to clear one large building. Multiply that by several hundreds or even thousands of buildings, and the minutes, the hours, the days, the weeks, and the months begin to add up. The coalition thought Mosul was going to take three months. It took nine months. Marawi took five months, and it isn't that big of a city compared to some of the other urban operations battles in history. Second Fallujah was a bit of an anomaly because... It took the Americans only eight to nine days to clear the city, but remember, they had weeks and weeks and weeks of intelligence preparation of the battlefield before then. So we have to tell our senior military and political leaders and our civilian populations that the urban battle we're about to embark on is going to take several weeks or even months. Quick victory is a Western concept. Get that out of your head right now when it comes to urban operations. Time is a resource. It needs to be put underneath the urban operations Christmas tree because we're going to need a lot of it when conducting an urban ops battle. 
The third and final urban operations gift I want to put under the tree is resources and education. I'll quote Thucydides. The nation that makes a great distinction between its scholars and its warriors will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting done by fools. I'll also quote General James Mattis. By reading, you learn through others' experiences, generally a better way to do business, especially in our line of work where the consequences of incompetence are so final for young men. Ultimately, a real understanding of history means that we face nothing new under the sun. It's the same with urban operations. This is not a new topic, folks. Modern urban operations, basically everything from the Battle of Stalingrad to the present, has been written or discussed about extensively. There are no lack of doctrinal publications, case studies, resources, books, essays, theses, articles, podcasts out there. And don't ignore our military's doctrinal publications. I've read American, British, Canadian, French, and NATO urban operations doctrinal publications, and all of them are quite good. And now with the internet, there are dozens of great books, essays, articles out there, many taking a lessons learned approach from historical urban battles. Invite guest speakers to your unit. John and I, in particular, are consistently invited to be the keynote speakers, guests, or instructors for conferences, podcasts, and training events, and we're more than happy to share our knowledge. Read, 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 and listen, listen, listen. Resources are abundant on this topic. Put them underneath your urban operations Christmas tree. That's all I got, John. Well, Jason, that was a lot. And Jason and Stuart, what an amazing list. And if we could only have a couple of those, what a difference we would make. So I, actually, Jason, you just mentioned a bunch of things that really keyed me. You know, Intel and Urban Operations Manual was just made inactive or recently made inactive, uh, which just shows some of the issues we have uh, as we ebb and flow and how we do things, what's the priority, where is it, that piece of information located. Don't, you know, don't get me started. Uh, and books, you know, I, I'll have a book coming out next year, just so you know, on urban operations, which we use these amazing conversations we're having on one podcast and turn it into a different media, which in there is also Jason's uh, lecture on Ortona, since Jason is probably the world's leading expert on the Battle of Ortona, which I, I get to make him a little bit jealous and tell him that I get to go walk that ground next year, which I know is, is just a little friendly nudge there. Yeah. You're not allowed to talk about that ever again, John. Thank you. <laughs> so Stuart joining Twitter recently, but already driving a massive intellectual conversation about urban operations. And unfortunately, as Jason says, he's not on the Twitter yet, but we got to get him on there because the conversations we're having with multiple militaries and this network of community of interest, we're trying to gather a list at the 40th Infantry Division and put it on a website saying, here are the key players. Stuart and Jason, of course, are at the top of that list as in exactly like Jason says. I don't know if he stole it from me, but we are students of urban operations and not experts. We don't consider ourselves that because the girth of expertise you need and the different categories of expertise in this are huge. I consider myself a little bit of a novice and even understanding the institutional history of the U.S. military's interest in preparing for urban operations. And there's some giant inflection points of that. And I understand Stuart and I agree that the UK is at a very high inflection point of wanting to make changes to be prepared for urban operations. And I'm I'm hopefully going to ride some of that and, and watch the fruits of that initiative and that interest in focusing training and work in urban operations that the UK is doing. It, I do think is similarly revolutionary if actionable things come out of it and not just continued conversation, which I, I think will. So guys, I, I can't thank you enough for joining the podcast. I think this will be a great light, but important conversation about our 2021 and you could say future years Christmas list for urban operations. No, thanks, John. It's been been an honor to be on the podcast. I've been listening for a very long time, so uh, it's an honor to, to be a guest on this. I'd just like to say, you know, this is listened quite extensively within the British military. And I'd like to say thank you for doing it. 
but then also like to speak to anybody in the British military who is interested in urban operations. By all means, you know, DSTL is a resource for you to use. Reach out to us. You can find us on the system. You can find my name on the system, certainly. So you can reach out if you've got any urban specific questions. Feel free. Thank you. And I'll uh, echo Stuart's appreciations, John. Thank you very much for having me back on the second podcast. And I'm also available for anybody within the Canadian Armed Forces. You can find me on the D1 or you can find me on uh, the Modern War Institute website uh, working with John on the uh, case studies. Thanks, John. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.